Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. You want to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to continue on looking at uh, love. And as we see it in the Bible, not described by the world, but we see it in the Bible. And as you're turning there, I want to do a quick, quick background of Corinth. This helps us to give context to what is going on in the church at the time. And so it's been roughly, you know, we've been talking about uh, 1 Corinthians now for almost six months. And so I think it would be helpful just to go through a quick, try and do a three-minute background in, of Corinth. So if we can put the map up for me real quick. Corinth is an actual place. It's not just some, some you know, some random letter. It's an actual uh, town, a city. It's in the southern part of Greece. And it's on a... Uh, it's on a part of, of Greece that separates the Corinthian Gulf from the Saronic Gulf. So what would happen is all traffic would have to travel through Corinth in this uh, kind of the Mediterranean basin. And it was a choice route for, um, for different sailors and different ships. And this made Corinth one of the greatest trading commercial centers of the ancient world. And so as you can imagine, there's all this, the goods and, and, and products sailors. There's all kinds of stuff going on in Corinth. And there's all kinds of uh, money to be made. There's all kinds of opportunities to be had, uh, as well as there being this economic prosperity in Corinth at the time. There was also lots of temples. It was a very uh, secular religious uh, place that had a lot of um, idolatry. And because of that, it it made for there to be um, dedication to temples and to worship of, 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 of different gods. And there was actually a temple of Aphrodite, which was on the top of a hill, and there, was a, there would be a thousand priestesses who were, who were prostitutes who would come down from the temple each night to work in the city streets. So you mix all this, this kind of new money, this prosperity, this uh, idolatry, this prostitution, all these things going on at the same time, as well as the Greek ideals of individualism, equality, freedom, and a distrust of authority. Take all that and you throw it into a church. So these people are coming out of this, this culture. They didn't grow up, the people in the church didn't grow up in the church. This church was a new church. These people were new believers. This was not something that people had, you know, been going to church for generations and they happened to be living in Corinth. No, these are all new believers. So you can see why there would be all kinds of issues as they bring the culture into the church for that day. Now, they also had something called, at the time, called patrons. And so a patron would be someone who had a lot of money, and at this time there was no middle class. So you either had money or you had no money. And there was nothing in between. And so the patrons had a lot of power. They had the money, they had the influence, they had the say in government, in what happened in the city. And so you would attach yourself to a patron to say, hey, look, that's my, that's my guy. He's going to look out for me. If he needs something from me, I'm going to help him out. There's this kind of reciprocal relationship that would take place. And so you can see where in the church at the time, where in the beginning, in the first couple of chapters, we're talking about people saying, hey, Apollos is my guy. The apostle Paul's my guy. Peter's my guy. They're bringing this culture of the society into the church 
as well as trying to incorporate what this means to be a believer. So, that was going on at the time. And really, the, the struggle for them was to say, what does it mean for us to be people who live with the reality that we belong to Jesus? That's been the struggle of the church throughout generations. Culture says one thing, the Word of God says another thing, and it's a struggle to say, who are we? Who do we belong to? Where, where do our allegiances lie? So it's been the struggle. So that's a bit of a background of Corinth. So I just wanted to go through that in case you're, you're new and you haven't um, been around for the past six months going through this. But that's the background of Corinth. That's where we're at this morning. So that being said, I want to look at a couple things. Number one, ask this question. What do we as Americans, what do Americans love? So if you're to think about this, what, what are the things that Americans love, right? Cheese? It's cheese. That, that'd be one. I wasn't going there, but we, what, else, what, what else do Americans, what is it? The Cubs? Yeah, that's right. They're America's team, right? Gifts? Yeah. Money? Football? Food? Cubs? Someone said Cubs again. That's right. Amen. This is their year. We're taking it this year. All right. So we love a lot of things. We love good movies. We love pizza. We love sports. So um, this writer wrote this article, Things That Americans Love That the Rest of the World Finds Bizarre. All right. There's a couple things. He, he lists 12. I'm only going to go through a couple. The first thing he writes is this, NASCAR. The rest of the world has no idea why, what's the infatuation with NASCAR. Second thing he writes is this, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. The different comments from people from the rest of the world, and this guy from France says, I don't like the texture, and the taste gives me cold sweats. <laughs> so another thing Americans love is suing everyone for everything. Someone writes this, In my government class, we brought in an American lawyer and a German lawyer. My teacher asked, Okay, say a family takes a child to the zoo. The child is sitting on the ledge, falls into the cage, and is eaten by a bear. Explain what legal action would be taken. The American lawyer says this, The zoo would be sued for an unsafe facility. The bear would likely be put down, and the zoo would probably have to pay a penalty. The German lawyer says this, Everyone would think the parents were idiots for putting their child on the ledge of a bear cage. They might even have to give the zoo compensation for bad publicity. It's kind of a common sense thing. Uh, the next thing he writes is this, Dr. Pepper. It says, apparently Dr. Pepper tastes like cough syrup to a few of my Korean friends. And the last thing Americans love is guns. So... There, it's an interesting thing. We read about all these different kinds of loves. We love peanut butter and jelly. We love NASCAR. We love guns. We love suing everybody for everything. I mean, there's all these things that we love. So when we get to a chapter on love in First in Corinthians, it, it's hard to distinguish what kind of love are we actually talking about here. Are we talking about the kind of love we have for a food or a sports team? Or is this a different kind of love that the Apostle Paul is talking about? So, in the original language that the New Testament was written in, there's a number of different words to describe different kinds of love. So here in, in English, we, we love. We love many things. But in the original language, there's, a, there's one kind of love that would, 
a word that would describe a friendship kind of love. There is another word that they would use to describe a family kind of affection, a, fam- a familiar love we have for a family. They have a, there's another word given for a, an intimate, passionate kind of love. Then lastly, there's a word that they use to describe an others-centered concern expressed at a great personal cost. That's agape love. The word they use is agape. So this kind of others-centered, giving this kind of love at a great cost. It's not the kind of cost, that, it's not the kind of love that you give towards peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? This is, this is a different, and the word that Paul uses in this section is this agape love. It's others-centered, giving it at a great cost to oneself. Now with that in mind, let's read through 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1, read through the end of the chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Jesus, we... God, we read this this chapter and we recognize in our own lives... God, our need for you, Lord, to help us, to encourage us, to give us hope that somehow, Lord Jesus, encapsulated in your your holy word, Lord, that we would, Lord, have the faith to walk in obedience to what you're calling us to. God, as beautiful and poetic as it is, God, we realize there's a reality to this that we cannot escape. And God, we pray today that you would help us have a greater understanding of your word. God, that your Holy Spirit would breathe life into us. Give us the faith to respond to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week we began at the beginning of the chapter. And we began looking at what authentic and inauthentic love looks like. Love gives meaning and value to what we do. So this week we're going to look at the nature of love. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. And so in doing so, I want to just turn over to Luke chapter 8. We're not going to read through all of this. But if you'd like to just quickly turn over to Luke chapter 8, 
we are going to look at a passage of Scripture that we see Jesus Christ in, in all that He is modeling for us what this would look like. Luke chapter 8, we're not going to, like I said, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but we'll start in verse 40. Passage of, section of Jesus' ministry where he's in Galilee. He had just healed a man full of demons, comes back. It says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. There's a sense of urgency in this passage where Jesus shows up on shore, and there's a great multitude of people waiting for him to arrive. And as he shows up, as people begin to crowd around him, there's this there's this man, Jairus, who's a, who's a ruler of the synagogue, someone of very high importance and stature in the community, falls at Jesus' feet and says, Jesus, you need to come to my home right now. He doesn't say, my daughter's not feeling well, my daughter's ill. He says, my daughter is dying. She is dying right now as we speak, and something needs to take place. There's, there's an urgency in this, in this cry for help that Jesus experiences. So Jesus says, no problem, let's go. And as he begins to move, the crowds of people begin to press in around him. So this is the, like the first century 911 call. And as Jesus begins to move towards Jairus' house, where this girl is dying, is people are, are beginning to crowd in around him. And somewhere in the midst of this crowd, of all these people going on, and Jesus moving his way towards a sick girl who's dying at this moment, this woman reaches out and she takes hold of his garment and just touches him. And she is immediately healed of this flow of blood that she had in her, in her body. And in the midst of all this that's going on, of Jesus on his way and this quick moving forward, moving towards Jairus' house, he stops what he's doing. And he begins to have a conversation. Now, if you can imagine this, this is, this is an urgent plea by Jairus. He's on his way. It's like if... If Josh Perry is in his ambulance one day and he gets a 911 call and there's, there's been a terrible accident and there's a young girl who's bleeding out at the scene and Josh gets in the ambulance, he starts driving to the place and as he's driving there, he sees someone with a flat tire and he pulls over to help the person with the flat tire. Now you could imagine, his partner's like, what are you doing, Josh? We gotta get going here. There's someone dying and you wanna help this person change a tire? Surely there's more important things to do right now. It was like that with Jesus. The people around you, they're probably thinking, Jesus, hey, we got to get you moving here. And Jesus, no, hold on a second here. We've got time for a conversation. And he turns over and he says, man, who touched me? And everyone's like, what are you talking about? There's people pressing in around you. There's crowds of people following you everywhere you go. There are people pressing in and trying to touch you, trying to see you, want to hear you, want to be with you, want to follow you. They're everywhere. Everyone here has probably tried to touch you at some point. He says, no, no, no. I felt power go out for me. Somebody touched me. And as they stop, a lady comes forward and says, I touched you. 
and I was instantly healed. And Jesus, in that moment, says, your faith has healed you, declares her healed in front of everyone so everyone would know this woman's not unclean anymore. She's been completely and utterly healed. Now, we don't know how long that transaction took place. We don't know if that were the only words that Jesus and this woman spoke. We know this, that in the middle of this chaotic crowd of people, Jesus takes the time as he's moving towards his dying girl to stop with some lady have a, a conversation with her. Now, this is a picture of love. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Now let's turn back over to 1 Corinthians 13. And as much as we read about what love is, I want us just to consider for a moment that this is a, these, these verses in verses 4 through 7, this isn't just talking about some verb, love. It's talking about a person. It's Jesus. So I'll read this one more time, and I want us to consider what this would mean for us. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist in his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is a story and a description of what Jesus is like. This is who Jesus is. But this doesn't only just tell me what Jesus is like, but it tells me of the love that Jesus has for each one of us. Think about this woman who had an issue of blood, says for 12 years, in that moment, there's a little girl laying, dying, with no hope. And Jesus stops to have a conversation with this woman. He's patient. He is kind. He's not in a hurry. He's got no other agenda but just to speak with this woman. He's not looking over his shoulder thinking, hey, can we get this conversation over with so I can move on to something more important? That's not what Jesus does at all. He stops and loves a worn out and tired and broken woman. This is what Jesus Christ does for each one of us. See, someone always has it worse than us, right? Someone always, we've all got friends who we go to and say, look, man, I'm going through a hard time. Here's what I'm struggling with. And they're like, well, you know what? That's nothing, you know? I've got it 10 times worse than you do. And in that moment, we need that person to, to come to us and say, hey, let me, let me pray for you. Let me listen to you. Let me remind you of, of what Jesus Christ is like. But Jesus does this for us every single day. He's not put off by our brokenness, our needs, our hurt. Not only do we see God loving us this way, but this also helps me to love other people. I want, I want to read a quick quote from a gentleman named Milton Vincent. He says this, Doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite 
what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nonetheless, when I remember remember myself of my sins against God and of his forgiving and generous grace toward me, I give the gospel an opportunity to shape, to reshape my perspective and to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give the same grace to those who have wronged me. It's powerful when we think as we consider the love of Jesus Christ and who he is and the way in which he has loved us, it gives us the opportunity to remember when we come across people in our own lives that we have a hard time loving to say, Jesus, because you have loved me this much, because you have loved me this way, I have the opportunity to love someone that way. Michelle and I this week celebrated 13 years of marriage. And... um, we sat down together on our anniversary and we read through our um, wedding vows to each other. And it sounds kind of cheesy, kind of is, but, you know, here's the deal. It doesn't just remind me, it doesn't just remind me of what we did in the past. It gives me hope for the future. As we go through and recount the way, so look, I will love you this way. This is what I've, I have committed before, before you and before the Lord, that we are going to interact with each other. We're going to love each other in this specific way. I'm going to give myself to you in this way. It gives us hope for the future. I do love you this way. You are precious to me. I'll do it all again in a moment. As we, as we can read through 1 Corinthians 13, it can remind us of what Jesus Christ is like and who he is and how he has loved us. And it gives us faith and hope that we can love other people in the same way because we've received this kind of love. It's a reminder for us all that Jesus is, the great depth by which Christ has loved us. I want to just, two quick things as we kind of close up. Two specific things is, as we look at f- verses 4 through 7 that really, I think, do incredible amount of damage in relationships. The first thing is this, is resentful, being resentful. And this word that they use for resentful is actually, in the original language, it's, it's an accounting word. This word means to keep a ledger. It means to keep a record of wrong. And so the word for resentful is, is to keep a record of wrong. And love does not keep a ledger or a record of wrong. And in Psalm 103, we read this, that God removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. There's a song, I think, like that. In Micah 7, it says that God takes our sin and, and throws it into the deepest parts of the ocean, the bottom of the ocean completely removing our sin from us. What we sometimes do in relationships is that we keep a record of wrong. And I would say that this really essentially is what gossip is. It's dredging up. You know, we think about the Lord removing our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, taking our sin and and taking it from us and putting it to the bottom of the ocean. And oftentimes what I do is I think, well, Thank goodness I'm a, 
I've got my deep sea scuba gear on because I'm going to go get that sin. I'm going to bring it out and I'm going to throw it in your face. And that does so much damage in relationship. Keeping a record of wrong. There's an accusation with that. Last time you did that too. You said this last time. You promised you weren't going to do that again. You always say this. You always do that. There's an accusation. There's, there is a ledger being kept. Jesus never does that with us. Never says, you know what? You did that last time too. You told me you were going to stop doing that and you broke your word to me. Doesn't do that. Completely forgives. Then he asks us to love people in the same way. Second thing that I think is really hard for us, and this is probably pertains more to a marriage than it does to maybe friendship, but it, it can it goes both ways. Is it insists on its own way. I think particularly with men. We think of this headship in the home or leadership in the home doesn't mean we insist to get our way in everything. And we do incredible damage to our marriages when we say, I'm the leader of the home, therefore do what I say. See, the Bible says this is what you should do. It's an incredible damage to relationship when we insist on our own ways. It is not the way the Lord loves us. It's not the way he wants us to love one another. There is something in love that says, look, because of your needs and where you are at, I will be happy to lay down my rights, to lay down what I, my demands, and that we, can, that we can see this love come to reality in our relationships. So what encourages those two things. I want us to look at Jesus and be amazed at who he is and what he's done for us. I want us to look at the forgiveness that he extends to us and the hope that he offers to each one of us. And when we think about what God's love for us looks like, we go back to the gospel. He loved us so much that he gave his life for us. He loved us so much that he, he would give us not just his, his life, but he'd give us his righteousness, forgiveness, his grace, when we trust in him, we can be forgiven and restored and brought back into relationship. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is the way in which he has radically loved each one of us. I want to pray. We're going to close with communion. It's a celebration. Communion is a celebration of the gospel. It's a celebration of what Jesus Christ has done. It's a celebration of his love for us that he would continue to invite us back to the table over and over and over again. So Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are love and that your love for us is not just some kind of nice thought or poem, Jesus, but you've loved us in reality with your life and your death and your resurrection, your gift of relationship. Jesus, thank you for the love that you've lavished upon us Thank you for your grace that avails to us. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we leave this place today, God, that you would help us to be awed by what you've done for us and that you give us the strength to love one another in the same way. In your name I pray, amen. Mm-hmm.